tea, spices, cotton, rice, furs, and honey. These things are so easy to get for us in our modern day society. All we need to do is pop down to our local supermarket or department store, buy the products using cash, card, or afterpay, and we can enjoy it to our heart's content. But in ancient times, before the world was globalized, getting these products was difficult depending on where you lived. China, for example, needed to rely on trade with other countries to attain some of those products I mentioned above. For example, cotton coming from Egypt, spices coming from India, and fur and honey coming from as far as Europe. This was all thanks to a network of trade routes called the Silk Road, or pronounced in Chinese as named as such because silk was the main commodity that was traded along these routes, owing to the high demand of Chinese silk from non-Chinese countries. The Silk Road connected Asia and Europe, and not only facilitated trade between all the nations along the Silk Road, it also helped foster political, cultural and religious interactions between these countries as well. But how was the Silk Road created? Who led the way in creating these networks that would bring everyone closer together? G'day everyone, I'm your host Stephen, and welcome to the Bamboo History Podcast. To all our new listeners, welcome. To our existing listeners, welcome back and thank you for continuing to support the show. For those who don't know what this podcast is about, it will mainly focus on Chinese history with exciting stories of events, traditions and intrigues that happened in China back in the day. The podcast will also look to expand to the history of neighbouring countries and regions as well in the future. Be sure to subscribe to this channel and follow the Instagram page at Bamboo History Podcast if you enjoy this content or if you just want to show your support. Anyway, let's get straight into it now. Today's episode will focus on how the ancient Chinese initiated the Silk Road, why they did so, and the man who risked his life carving out the famous trade route. In order to answer the above questions, it is important to establish the context of the ancient Chinese world at the time. As you know from my first episode on the Han Chinese people, the Chinese civilization originated from the central China plains area around the Yellow River over 3,000 years ago and expanded its territories in all directions over the next thousand years. Eventually, they stopped their expansion because, for instance, going further west would lead to the inhospitable regions of the Tibetan Plateau. Expanding south and east would eventually hit the ocean, and expanding north would stop because the grasslands and steppe that is in the current day regions of Mongolia and Siberia were not suitable for the Han Chinese way of life, which was primarily built around agriculture, farming settlements, and later on, cities. The areas north of China, therefore, were inhabited by tribes of people living a nomadic way of life, primarily living in tents and traveling by horseback, as the land they lived on did not allow them to live there for longer, more permanent periods of time. Living in these areas was harsh, and these nomadic tribespeople would often look into the distance of their southern neighbours, the Chinese, with awe, jealousy, and desire, because they got to live their lives comfortably in a house that protected them from the elements, 
lived off the land without having to move around all the time, and as a result, also had the opportunity to build up a wealth of resources, including food and clothing, something the nomadic tribes yearned for and really, really wanted. So they thought, if we can't produce all of these things on the land we live on, why don't we just take it from the Chinese? And so, from the moment the Chinese civilization flourished, the periodic raids from the northern nomadic tribes also began. They would ride into border towns and settlements in Chinese territory, taking the supplies they needed, often killing the civilians living there, then riding off in a flash, before the Chinese government or army could even respond. When Emperor Qin Shi Huang united China and founded the Qin Dynasty in the year 221 BCE, he decided to put an end to this constant raiding and skirmishes by the nomadic tribes, and sent an army to defeat the nomadic peoples at the time, who were called the Xiongnu, spelt X-I-O-N-G-N-U, and did defeat them. The Xiongnu people at the time were scattered everywhere on the steppe and grasslands that now forms Mongolia, Siberia, and China's Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region. And because they were fragmented, they were easily defeated by the Qin. After this defeat, however, the Xiongnu knew that the Chinese were a threat and could easily wipe them out if they were not united. So that was when, in the year 209 BCE, a Xiongnu man named Mo Du, spelled M-O-D-U, stepped up on the Mongolian steppe, <laughs> and united all these different Xiongnu tribes to form the Xiongnu Empire. Mo Du became the leader of this empire and was given the title of Chan Yu, C-H-A-N-Y-U, which is a Xiongnu leadership title equal to that of a monarch. This unification thus became a great threat in turn for the Chinese. To make matters worse for the Chinese, they had been embroiled in years of civil war as the Qin dynasty collapsed in the year 206 BCE, which gave the Xiongnu time to expand and grow stronger without interference from their southern neighbours. Eventually, the civil war ended in China when Liu Bang founded the Han dynasty in the year 202 BCE and became known as Emperor Gaozu of Han. If you remember Liu Bang, he was featured in episode 4 of this podcast, who was a participant in the Hongmen Feast dinner party. As the emperor of the new empire, Emperor Gaozu realised that he had to address the growing threat of the Xiongnu. So he led an army north to attack them in the year 200 BCE. But that campaign ended in disaster, mainly because the Han army, which consisted of mainly foot soldiers and chariots, were no match for the Xiongnu's cavalry, which were faster and stronger and more mobile. As a result, the Han were forced to enter into treaties with the Xiongnu, which dictated that the Han had to give the Xiongnu gifts and gold on a regular basis. To appease the Xiongnu and prevent them from launching another invasion, Emperor Gaozu also initiated a policy called Hequin, spelt H-E-Q-I-N, which was essentially a marriage alliance where the Han royal family would send off a princess of theirs to marry the Xiongnu leader, the Chan Yu. This policy was initiated in the year 196 BCE. Whilst this relationship with the Xiongnu was humiliating for the Han dynasty, their appeasement to the Xiongnu 
meant that the Shungnu left them alone, allowing the Han dynasty to focus on their internal affairs and build up their empire's strength and wealth. And after around 40 years, the Han dynasty became a rich and prosperous empire. By this time, one of China's greatest emperors, Emperor Wu Di, spelt W-U-D-I, had ascended the throne in the year 156 BCE. Emperor Wu Di was an ambitious man and was disgusted at the fact that his empire was acting like a little dog in front of the Xiongnu. So he made it his mission to fight and destroy the Xiongnu in order to stop the decades of appeasement, remove the Han's main external threat and restore dignity back to the Han Empire. He would need to find allies, but where could he find them? During Emperor Wu Di's time, people knew of a distant land far, far out west that was known as the Xi Yu region. Xi Yu spelt X-I-Y-U, and in Chinese literally means the western regions. The Xi Yu area is presently defined as the areas of Xinjiang in China, and parts of Central Asia such as Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Turkmenistan. Emperor Wu Di and the Han knew that there were many kingdoms in the Xi Yu region that could potentially help them fight the Xiongnu, especially a large kingdom called the Yue Zhi, spelt Y-U-E-Z-H-I. The Yue Zhi were also nomadic peoples that bordered the Xiongnu and had also lived on the steppe and grasslands. However, when the Xiongnu formed their empire, they began to expand, invading the Yue Zhi. In the year 176 BCE, the Xiongnu defeated the Yue Zhi and the Xiongnu leader killed the king of Yue Zhi and made a wine cup out of his skull. Ouch. The Yue Zhi, defeated and filled with hate of the Xiongnu, packed up their tents and bags and migrated west as a result. Emperor Wu Di believed that the Yue Zhi would want payback for what the Xiongnu did to them, and he believed that if he was able to initiate contact with the Yue Zhi and persuade them to join them in the fight against the Xiongnu, then the Yue Zhi could attack the Xiongnu from the west, and the Han could attack the Xiongnu from the south, creating a pincer movement that could defeat the Xiongnu. Emperor Wu Di would need to send an emissary to the Yue Zhi kingdom and persuade them to join the fight. So, Emperor Wu Di asked his ministers and court officials if there were any volunteers that would like to take on the role as the emissary to go to the Yue Zhi kingdom. And no one wanted to go. Why? So many reasons. I'll just list a few of them. Firstly, no one actually knew where the Yue Zhi was. They migrated west, but where exactly in the west? To make things more difficult, the Han knew of the Xi Yu western regions, but no one had actually gone there, and they didn't even have a map of these regions. It was literally a journey to the unknown that scared a lot of people. Secondly, the journey itself involved crossing unforgivable desert terrain and scaling perilous mountain ranges. I don't think many of these ministers and court officials engaged in desert exploring and mountaineering in their free time. Thirdly, and most importantly, was that the Xiongnu Empire controlled territories between the Han Empire and the Xi Yu region. 
This meant in order to reach the Xiyu, they had to cross enemy territory, and if they got caught, they might die. But just when all hope was lost, just when Emperor Wu Di would give up on this mission because no one volunteered, out of the blue, one man stood up and decided to volunteer for perhaps one of the most significant Chinese mission of that time. Everyone turned around and gasped. Emperor Wu Di stood up to try and see who that man was. Who was he? Who was this brave soul? His name was Zhang Qian. Zhang Qian, spelt Z-H-A-N-G-Q-I-A-N, was born in the year 164 BCE and was 27 years old when he volunteered for this journey. At the time, he was an attendant to the emperor, known in Chinese as a Langguan, L-A-N-G-G-U-A-N. And Zhang Qian saw this mission as an opportunity to boost his resume and make a name for himself. Emperor Wu Di was so happy that someone finally stepped up to the challenge and gave him around a hundred soldiers to accompany him, as well as a Xiongnu man named Gan Fu, G-A-N-F-U, to act as his guide and translator. So in the year 138 BCE, Zhang Chen bid farewell to the emperor and led his diplomatic entourage out of the Han dynasty capital of Chang'an, presently the Chinese city of Xi'an. Zhang Chen was immediately met with the challenge of crossing the enemy Xiongnu territory. They tried to cross the territory quietly, but with a hundred people or so, it's kind of hard to hide in plain sight. And unfortunately for him, their group was spotted by Xiongnu soldiers, who arrested them and sent them back to the Xiongnu leader, the Chan Yu. When Zhang Chen met the Chan Yu, the Chan Yu asked Zhang Chen, Dude, why were you in our land? Zhang Chen had his heart in his mouth and knew he was probably going to die. And he thought, oh wells, might as well tell the truth, nothing to lose. So he replied, We were going to the Xiyu region to find the Yuezhi kingdom and convince them to attack you. The Chan Yu was surprised, and then impressed at his honesty and remarked, Ha ha ha, good one mate, that is a mighty creative idea by you and your little emperor. He then added, Well I'm going to cut your little trip short, and you can stay right here with me. So instead of being executed, Zhang Chen became a prisoner of the Xiongnu, where he was imprisoned for 10 long years. In those 10 years of imprisonment, he learnt the Xiongnu way of life and their language, and even started a family, marrying a Xiongnu woman, and had a child as well. Back at home, Emperor Wu Di thought of him all the time as well, worrying why it was taking him ages to come back. And after a few years, he feared the worst, and he accepted the fact that Zhang Chen may have died on the journey. However, despite being imprisoned for that long, Zhang Chen never forgot about the mission that his emperor gave him, and he never gave up on his quest to find the Yuezhi kingdom, and so he was always looking for opportunities to escape. Then, finally, after 10 years, he found a window of opportunity. I'd like to think that it was when the guards were off at a bathroom break. And he escaped with Gan Fu, his translator, as well as his wife and child. 
They continued westward and finally entered the Xiyu region for the first time. With the help of guides from local Xiyu kingdoms, they followed a road on the northern edge of the Tarim Basin in present-day Xinjiang, then crossed the mighty Kunlun Mountains, before finally reaching the rich and fertile lands of Central Asia. This was when Zhang Chen found the Yuezhi Kingdom, who had settled in the Amu Daya River region around present-day Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. I cannot imagine the mental strength and resolve that it took Zhang Chen to journey the 4,000 kilometers or 2,500 miles into an unknown world with dangers lurking everywhere to complete a mission given to him 10 years ago that he could have easily just given up on. So hats off to you, brother. Zhang Chen himself was also over the moon when he finally found the Yuezhi kingdom. But seeing how rich and fertile the Yuezhi lands were, and how happy the people looked. Zhang Chen was also feeling a little nervous about asking the Yuezhi to join them in war. He was right about being nervous, because when Zhang Chen met with the Yuezhi king and tried to persuade them to join the Han in fighting the Xiongnu, the king refused, telling Zhang Chen that the Yuezhi people now enjoyed and craved peace, and they didn't want to risk breaking apart their peace and prosperity to fight a war that would put them all in strife again. Zhang Chen was disappointed and gutted that he couldn't complete his task after coming all this way, but he remained in the Yuezhi kingdom for a year or so, trying time after time to convince the Yuezhi leadership group to fight the Xiongnu, but to no avail. Zhang Chen thought, well I have to make the most out of my time here, and also used the time in the Yuezhi kingdom to visit other places in the Xiyu region, documenting the culture lifestyle and traditions of these kingdoms. After staying for a year, Zhang Chen, Gan Fu and his wife and child left the Yuezhi and made the return journey back home, reaching the Han capital of Chang'an in the year 125 BCE. Zhang Chen left the capital city in the year 138 and returned back 13 years later. 13 long years. When Emperor Wu Di heard that Zhang Chen had returned, he reacted like, Wait, what? I thought he was dead. Oh, oh my goodness me. He's back? Oh my god, he's back. Wow. Oh, oh, I have to meet him. I have to meet him now. He was filled with a mix of shock, surprise, and finally happiness. Happy that a friend, who he for so long thought was dead, had finally returned to him. When Zhang Chen met the Emperor, he asked for forgiveness for not managing to persuade the Yuezhi, but the emperor was just happy to see him alive. It just so happened that after the emperor accepted the fact that Zhang Chen was probably dead, he had also ditched his idea of joining forces with the Yuezhi and decided to train his own army and cavalry to attack the Xiongnu by themselves. The war between the Han and the Xiongnu is also an interesting topic that I will perhaps cover another day. Regardless, whilst Zhang Chen couldn't convince the Yuezhi, his trip was still very valuable. The time he spent in the Yuezhi kingdom and in the neighbouring Xiyu regions, as well as his accounts of the Xiyu kingdoms, was valuable information to the emperor and to the Han. And that connecting with these Xiyu regions and trading with them would give the Han access to valuable resources. One such resource was a special breed of horse called the Fergana horse, or in Chinese, the Han Xue Bao Ma. 
The Fagana horse was said to have had the qualities of a war horse, including the ability to run for 500 kilometers or 300 miles per day. The Fagana horse only existed in the Xiyu region at the time, so opening up trade could allow the Han to acquire these horses to use against the Xiongnu. Zhang Qian also brought back home some other goodies, including unique products to try, such as grapes, dates, or garlic. Mwah, delicious! He also gave the Emperor and the Han a map of the Xiyu regions as well. Bloody oath, finally, we have a map now! For all of his efforts, Zhang Qian was honoured and given the noble title of a Marquis. After Zhang Qian's journey, the Han Dynasty army fought the Xiongnu and took over the land west of them that connected the Han with the Xiyu regions. This land is known as the Hershi Corridor, and controlling this territory meant that any future trips to the western regions was a lot safer as they didn't have to cross enemy territory ever again. This increased more and more Han diplomatic missions, and Zhang Chen himself went a few more times to the Xiyu regions, creating political and trade relations with those kingdoms. The formation of these political and trade relations broadened gradually to include further away places in the Middle East, South Asia, and eventually Europe, creating a network of routes connecting all of these places. These routes, surprise surprise, became known as the Silk Road. So yeah, that's the end of the story of how and why the Silk Road was formed. Zhang Qian lived a great life and passed away in the year 113 BCE at the age of 51. But his name lives on as one of the great ancient Chinese explorers and diplomats, and is now considered a hero in Chinese history and culture. What touched me especially was the resolve he had to complete his mission. There were several times where he could have given up, but he didn't, and it's his steely character, perseverance and courage that I admire and that we should all strive for, so all of us can emerge successfully just like Zhang Qian, no matter how many setbacks you experience along the way. Now comes an end to another episode of the Bamboo History Podcast. I hope all of you enjoyed it. As always, I encourage you all to give me any comments or feedback to this podcast. Simply send me an email at the address listed in the description box below. Alternatively, you can also message me on my Instagram at Bamboo History Podcast. If you head on to my Instagram, you will also find additional bite-sized historical content too small to put into a podcast. So please subscribe to my channel and follow my Instagram to show your support. It would mean a lot to me. Alright, I need to go now. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your day or evening and see you all next time on the Bamboo History Podcast. Bye for now.